Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm actually doing pretty great. I got my second COVID shot a couple of weeks ago, which means that this weekend I was actually able to hug my mom for the first time in like 15 months, something like that. So yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And uh, since we're on the topic of the vaccine, I think like a lot of you, I've heard a lot of really ridiculous conspiracy theories about effects of the vaccine. Uh, I think probably the most prominent one that I've heard is that after you get it, you'll no longer be able to write puns that are at the level of Mad Magazine parodies from the 80s. And to those conspiracy theorists, I would just like to say, what if instead of Jeff Bezos, he was named Jeff Bozo, and he ran a company called Scamazon? Or he could be Jeff Blackzos, and he could run a company called Shamazon. These are all wonderful and hilarious ideas, and I hope have disproved all those conspiracy theorists out there. Also, Mad Magazine, if you're listening, hit me up. I'm available. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Jeff Satter. By the seven circles, here's something not to miss. Now kick back and listen to the synopsis. Synopsis. And synopsis is spelled S-I-N because it relates to, uh, you know, seven circles. Huh? You know, uh, seven circles of hell because it's sin. So I guess James has been vaccinated too. Good job, James. Thank you. Defenders, number 99. September, 1981. The final conflict? And then there's a question mark at the end. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Joe Sinnott, lettered by Gene Simak, colored by George Rousos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Valkyrie. Son of Satan. Devil Slayer. Gargoyle. The Incredible Hulk. The Submariner, Clea, The Silver Surfer, Nighthawk, Hellcat, and the back of Iron Man and Captain America's respective heads in one flashback panel. Previously in the Defenders. A little while ago, Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan, was performing a routine exorcism when he found out that a sextet of minor demons was plotting against the Defenders. This infernal alliance called itself the Six-Fingered Hand, on account of its members had all moved in together to live as finger puppets on a giant disembodied evil palm. In addition to saving them some rent money, this unconventional living arrangement apparently granted the previously inconsequential imps enormous power. Hellstrom hurried to inform our titular non-team of this new threat, but then some cosmic nonsense happened, and the devil daddy do-gooder got distracted and forgot. By the time he remembered, the Six-Fingered Hand had already launched a two-pronged assault on our heroes. First, the malevolent Metacarpus zapped Nighthawk, a.k.a. Kyle Richmond, with a spell that left the billionaire Duelbird enthusiast paralyzed during daylight hours. 
Though still as strong as two strong men at night, the affluent avian aficionado decided to take a hiatus from Defendersing and concentrate on his long-neglected corporate empire. For the second strike, the perfidious paw targeted Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat. The cat-costumed crime fighter was at home mourning the recent death of her estranged mother when one of the demonic digits of the hand, Avarish, sent a hideous gargoyle to kidnap Patsy and destroy her newly inherited house. The gargoyle took Patsy to a small town in Virginia, where he performed a ritual which sacrificed her soul to Avarish, which allowed the demon to possess her. The Hulk was taking one of his many sabbaticals from the Defenders, but Doctor Strange teleported himself, Valkyrie, and Son of Satan to Virginia for a rescue attempt. Upon arrival, the trio was ambushed by a possessed Patsy, who used her newfound demonic might to kick the living shit out of her would-be liberators. The avarice-infused adventurer was about to immolate her erstwhile allies, but at the last minute, Valkyrie managed to friendship Patsy back to normal. Hooray! Stephen Damon performed a hasty exorcism, which sent Avarish fleeing back to the mysterious dimension the Hand called home. Patsy, well pleased to be back to her old self, was nevertheless pretty bummed, because during her possession she found out that prior to her death, her mother Dorothy had tried to sell Patsy's soul to Avarish. Bummer! Putting this aside for the moment, the Defenders tracked down the gargoyle who had kidnapped Patsy and found out that he was a local octogenarian named Isaac Christians. Isaac was a dabbler in the dark arts who had agreed to work for the Hand in exchange for the demons providing economic incentives for his beloved hometown. Avarish had transformed Isaac into a gargoyle so that he could better carry out his missions, but when Ike had proven less than enthusiastic about the more murdery aspects of his duties, his Beelzebubian boss had gotten pissed and trapped his apostate employee in this body forever. Ike asked if he could join the Defenders to try to atone for his crimes, and for some reason, the gang thought that sounded like a fine plan. Over the course of the next week or so, Steve teleported the gang all over the globe as they thwarted a series of the Six-Fingered Hands schemes in such disparate locations as Detroit, Transylvania, Jerusalem, and finally, Florida. Steve was a little concerned that all his teleporting might weaken the fabric of reality which keeps the universe from going all higgledy-piggledy, but the supercilious sorcerer figured, eh, what you gonna do? During the course of their demon thwarting, our heroes tussled with and alongside an array of reluctant allies, including Ghost Rider, The Avengers, Man-Thing, Literal Dracula, and Devil Slayer. The last of which decided to stick around for, if not the long haul, then at least a medium-length one. Devil Slayer, a.k.a. Eric Simon Payne, was a former Vietnam vet who had been briefly duped into joining an evil occult organization whose dogma was loosely based on Blue Oyster cult lyrics. During his time in this cult, Eric had gained a voluminous cape called the Shadow Cloak, which allowed him to teleport and from which he could retrieve any weapon he desired. Patsy had acquired a similar cloak during a team-up with Eric, but hers had been lost when the gargoyle demolished her house. Speaking of Patsy's Shadow Cloak, recently an asshole kid named Cliff had been playing in the rubble of the Walker estate when he had stumbled across the mystical garment. Cliff donned the cloak to emulate his hero, Mandrake the Magician, and to the alarm of his playmates, had disappeared. Even more alarming, a few seconds later a demonic lizard man emerged from the folds of the cape. Under normal circumstances, this development would have no doubt alarmed Hellcat, but Patsy had been a bit out of sorts lately, having suffered from a series of inexplicable relapses of demonic possession. Also, the feline of fluctuating fiendishness was likely unaware of her cape's misappropriation, seeing as she and the rest of her cohort were in a swamp in Florida at the time. 
The Six-Fingered Hand's most recent plot had involved the disappearance of the bustling town of Citrusville, Florida, which was perhaps not coincidentally located over a sort of crossroads of the multiverse called the Nexus of All Reality. The Hand's influence had caused a small tear in the fabric of reality. Naturally, or perhaps supernaturally, the Defenders decided to step through the rip in the universe in hopes of confronting the Hand in their home dimension. After stepping through the void, a number of things soon became apparent to the dimension-hopping do-gooders. One, both Eric's Shadow Cloak and Hellcat were no longer with them. B, they were almost certainly walking, or rather floating, into a trap. And three, the liminal space betwixt realities is a pretty weird place. This last bit was most notably demonstrated when they drifted by a capybara youth pastor who was taking his pet human out to shit on his lawn. Eventually, the quintet of cosmic castaways drifted into the lair of the six-fingered hand. They were greeted by the hand's self-proclaimed leader, a demon named Maya, who was the one member of the opposition they had yet to encounter. Maya stood in front of the rest of the demonic digits of the hand and gave the heroes a surprisingly eloquent speech, welcoming them to his dimension. The gang was too distracted to listen very intently, though, because on the ground at the demon's feet, each sealed inside a magical snow globe, lay the nearly lifeless bodies of Clea, Namor, the Silver Surfer, and the Incredible Hulk. Gadzooks! How did the Six-Fingered Hand manage to capture four of the Defender's most powerful allies? Why is the Hand so pissed off at the Defenders in the first place? And does either the Youth Pastor Capybara or his pet human have any impact on this issue whatsoever? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... an astral telemarketing scam? Mostly as part of a needlessly complicated scheme, but also, I suspect they're frustrated because having an even number of digits means they can't really give anyone the middle finger. And, nah, not really, but what was I gonna do? Not bring it up? I mean, it's a capybara youth pastor taking its pet human out to shit on the lawn. After a page or so of exposition recapping recent events, Maya resumes his smug, condescending speech, welcoming the Defenders to his realm. Son of Satan gets pissed and hurls his trident at Maya, but the demon shrugs it off and continues with his exposition with a show of mock civility. Doctor Strange reprimands his perfidiously parented pal for flying off the handle. Damon is like, Sorry, but my Satan's senses are tingling. I've got a strange feeling that this Maya fellow is a whole bunch more evil than his fellow fiendish phalanges. Steve is like, Yes, whatever, just try to tone it down, okay? At this point, Maya gives a little gesture, and the hostage heroes began to stir groggily within their mystical snow globes. Clea is like, Hi, Steve. Sorry we got captured. This guy sent me an astral message that I thought was from you. The fake you said that you needed help and that I should call these other guys for backup. They also said that I had inherited a large amount of money which was waiting for me in a foreign country, but to access it, I had to pay a processing fee and they were going to need the routing number for my checking account for that. In retrospect, that probably should have been a red flag. I also probably should have been suspicious when the person I thought was you said, please. Anyway, when we showed up to rescue you, these assholes ambushed us and stuffed us in these magic snow globes. Sorry. Steve is like, 
So, did you get the inheritance? Uh, no, never mind. You can tell me about it later. I'm too angry about this whole kidnapping thing to listen right now. To paraphrase an associate, Steve Smash! Temporarily overcome by rage, Steve zaps the snow globes with some magic bolts. Unfortunately, as Maya glibly explains, each dome is linked to the life force of its respective prisoner. Clea, Hulk, Namor, and the Surfer wince in pain at the ferocity of Steve's mystic assault. Damon is like, Nice one, Steve. Maybe try to tone it down a little, huh? Remember, because you said that to me? Dick. Steve is momentarily chagrined and backs off. Maya is like, Love that you guys are fighting. That is just terrific. Now, come on, guys. I'll give you a little tour so you can see what we did to Citrusville. From that, you should be able to extrapolate what we're going to do to the rest of your planet. Let's go. Avarish is like, Hey, do you have to bring the gargoyle with us? This guy sucks. Can't we just, I don't know, kill him or something? Valkyrie is like, Fuck off, demon. Gargoyle may kind of suck, but since when has that disqualified someone from membership in the Defenders? He's with us. Then she kicks Avarish right in the butt. Hooray! Avarish starts to get all pissy and is about to take a swing at the sorcerously Scandinavian sword slinger, but Maya rolls up and gives him a significant look. Avarish is instantly cowed and starts groveling for forgiveness. Interesting. Everyone follows Maya to see what modifications the demons have made to Citrusville. Everyone, that is, except for Gargoyle, who has been conveniently left behind. Stealthily, the statue-semblanced senior citizen makes his way towards the domes which are imprisoning the Defender's allies. Meanwhile, back in New York, Kyle Richmond is hanging out with Luann Bloom, the nurse he has hired to help him out during his daytime paralysis. They've apparently just had a nice chat. Kyle thanks Luann for her work, and she takes off so that the paralyzed plutocrat can have his afternoon nap. No sooner has Luann left than Patsy teleports into the room using the shadow cloak she presumably lifted off Eric before ditching him and the rest of the defenders. Patsy is unusually sassy, even for her. She lifts Kyle out of bed and is like, Come on, dipshit! I found a guy who can heal you up! Then she uses her ill-gotten garment to whisk a dumbfounded Nighthawk off to parts unknown. Back in wherever the hell Citrusville is these days, the rest of the gang is getting the grand tour. To say they're unimpressed with the renovations that the Hand has made would be a bit of an understatement. Mostly, the town is the same, only shittier and more falling apart. But, all the citizens have been turned into faceless, shambling homunculi. It's pretty unsettling. Valkyrie approaches one such featureless former Floridian and asks if she can help him in any way. But the guy doesn't know what's happening. He's so freaked out and in pain that he lashes out blindly and backhands Valkyrie away. One of the demons, Unthink, is like, Neat, huh? We're fixing to do this to everyone in the universe. If you want to, you can join up with us and we'll give you a planet to run. You want in on this action? Damon is like, Look, asshole. First of all, no. And B... We have just spent the last couple of weeks blipping around the world thwarting the shit out of you guys. What makes you think you can take us now? Unthink is like, Yeah, but now we're on our home turf. Home court advantage is very important. 
except in a best of seven NBA playoff series between the Portland Trailblazers and the Denver Nuggets, because both of those teams have excellent road records. If Yosef Nurkic can stay out of foul trouble, then the Trailblazers should be able to hold off the Nuggets, despite Denver having home court advantage because of their better regular season record. Hmm. Unthink the Demon raises an interesting point. Maya is like, Give it a rest, Unthink. We all know that the Portland Trailblazers are the best team in the NBA, and more importantly, are pure of heart, which is why we demons have given them injuries and conspired with the referees to fuck them over all season. But forget about that for now. I'm anxious to show our guests the crown jewel of our accomplishments here. And with that, the Infernal Tour Guide gestures proudly towards a disturbing sight that fills our heroes with shock and rage. It is a really shitty version of a state fair. Like, really shitty. Fetid headless lizards impaled on spikes are sold by faceless vendors. Damned souls are ridden and whipped by gleeful children in a cruel parody of a merry-go-round. And worst of all, there aren't any funnel cakes. The sight of a fairgrounds bereft of fried dough proves too much for the defenders to bear. Son of Satan is like, I don't care if all our friends die. Hell, I don't care if we die. But this is not how you run a state fair. Fuck this place. The rest of the gang is in full agreement. Acting as one, they fly into a rage and attack their hellish hosts. A Donnybrook of the Damned ensues. Hooray! At first, the defenders are doing pretty well for themselves. But for every demon they vanquish, three more seem to rise to take its place. Also, the damned Citrus Villians try to join the fray, but unable to tell friend from foe, they strike out indiscriminately and do far more harm than good. Things are looking pretty bad for the good guys when suddenly, the tide turns. First, for no apparent rhyme or reason, the faceless Floridians start getting their faces back. Neat! Then, a swift attack from above begins to obliterate our hero's hell-spawned opposition. It turns out, Gargoyle figured out a way to free Namor, Clea, Hulk, and the Surfer. Hooray! In a matter of minutes, the forces of evil are laid to waste. Hooray! But once the battle is concluded, a strange thing happens. Or rather, a whole bunch of strange things happen. First of all, the newly liberated citizens of Citrusville suddenly disappear. Huh. Bye, newly liberated citizens of Citrusville! Next, all of the members of the Six-Fingered Hand start shrinking down until they're about five inches tall. Oh, that was unexpected. Steve turns to the Silver Surfer and is like, How could you have possibly gotten free? I gave it a half-assed attempt which wasn't immediately successful, so naturally I assumed it was an impossible task. The Silver Surfer is like, Beats me? Ask Gargoyle. He's the one who did it. Gargoyle is like, Oh, fiddlesticks. It twerk nothing. You know these weird bolts I shoot out of my clawed hands? Well, it turns out those are the blasts of life force that I suck out of the person I'm zapping. Once I realized that, I figured I could probably also shove more life force into people by reverse zazzing them. So I did that, and then everyone got so filled with healthiness that they just burst out of their own energy cages. Wait, what? So, 
You've been shooting people with bolts that you've sucked the life force out of them with before you shot them? Or the blasts are made of life force suckingness? Or having sucked life forceness? But you can also reverse suck life into people that you haven't life force sucked yet? That comes from... Where? Steve is like, well, yes, that all makes perfect sense, but how did you know you could do that? At this point, Maya pipes up and is like, because I telepathically planted the thought in his brain. <laughs> Dumbasses. Okay, remember a few minutes ago when I said the six-fingered hand all shrunk down to actual finger puppet size? Well, turns out only most of them did. Maya is still as big as ever. In fact, if anything, he's bigger. As the defenders stare in horror and confusion, Maya's image shimmers and changes. The form of a purple Gilbert Gottfried-looking guy sporting furry underpants and a tail is replaced by an enormous pink-skinned man with wild red hair and a voluminous crimson cape. Well, shit. It's Mephisto. If you aren't familiar, Mephisto is one of the more prominent of the many stand-ins for the devil that exist in the Marvel Universe. He has ill-defined but very potent cosmic and hellish powers, and for a long time was very keen on acquiring the Silver Surfer's soul. He's fought the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and darn near every other A-list superhero on numerous occasions, and while he's usually thwarted in some way, he is very rarely outright defeated. He is, in short, a very big deal. He's also a real asshole. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Patsy has just teleported Kyle to a cave in the Arizona desert. As she walks deeper into the cave, Patsy's bangs start to curl up into little horns. That's almost never a good sign. At the back of the cave, atop a flaming throne, sits a sinister, blurry red figure whose eyes glow eerily with malevolence. Kyle is like, who are you? The menacing figure replies, it's me, you idiot, Satan. I think you know my son. Well, shit. Back in New Jersey, a boy named Edward Lionel Alvis, who was one of the kids who had been playing with Cliff when the unfortunate Mandrake fan had inexplicably blipped out of existence and been replaced with a demon, leads his mother to the site of that unfortunate incident. Ed's mother is understandably skeptical about her son's story, but that skepticism vanishes when she arrives at the former Walker residence and sees a slew of incredibly goofy-looking demons just licking the crap out of everything. Together, the mother and child flee in terror. Back in wherever the hell the Defenders are, Mephisto is gloating and providing exposition. He is very good at both activities. The diabolical devil doppelganger uses some of his nonsense powers to seal all of the heroes into a huge pill made out of lava or something. As he works, the substitute Satan is like, So here's the deal. I noticed a while ago that every time anybody teleports, the barriers which bind reality get a little bit weaker. If those barriers don't work, then evil cosmic people like me can do all kinds of wacky stuff. So I found a bunch of minor demons and filled their heads with a bunch of nonsense about how powerful they could be if they lived together on a hand. <laughs> what a bunch of chumps. I gave them just enough extra juice to convince both them and you that they were a legitimate threat to the universe. 
Every time you teleported around the world to try to stop them, reality got weaker and me and my allies got stronger. Since Devil Slayer, a nice code name by the way, Eric, how's that working out for you? Could teleport too? I manipulated events so that he would join up with you guys as well. For the final step, I trick you guys into entering the nexus of all realities. Whenever anyone uses magic in here, reality just starts looking like someone ran a cheese grater over it. And once you guys saw how shitty the state fair I whipped up was, you couldn't help yourself. Then I tricked Isaac here into letting Hulk, Namor, Clay, and the Silver Surfer in on the action, and them using their powers as well pretty much acid-washed the fabric of reality until it more or less fell apart. And I think that more or less brings you readers, I mean defenders, up to speed. Oh, and I have some plans for Patsy and Damon here too, but we probably won't get around to that until next issue. When he is finished excreting this enormous exposition dump, Mephisto zooms the weird lava pill he stuffed the defenders into back to Earth. A few seconds later, our heroes find themselves in New York City. And I gotta tell ya, the Big Apple isn't looking so good. Hordes of demons fill the streets, torturing the city's denizens in a variety of ways. In the middle of the square, Satan sits on his throne. On his left, he is flanked by a demoned-up patsy and a stupefied-looking nighthawk. On his left are two more of Marvel's Satan-esque supervillains. A devil-looking dude named Thog, who used to mix it up with Man-Thing, and the flaming-headed D-minus-devil with the stupid-sounding sobriquet, Satan-nish. From his throne, Satan mockingly welcomes the Defenders to what he calls Hell on Earth. To be continued. Man, the hubris of this guy is unbelievable. Look, if you're an evil villain intent on ruining Times Square, you're supposed to get elected mayor first. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going well. I had uh, the afternoon off, which was a delight, and mm. uh, it's a pleasant sunny day outside. How are you going? Ah, it's okay. I've been watching some of the NBA playoffs. Oh. Yeah, I uh, I don't care for basketball. Never have. Um, it's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> always said it's a, it's a dumb game fundamentally it's just a bad dumb game and i don't like it and so i don't care at all which teams won or you know didn't win mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just a bad game i've always said that yeah that's just not super accurate i i wish the blazers had well they still have some chances no yeah no they still will of course win the nba championship this year mm -hmm. well if it's taught us nothing else it's what did he say? If you're going to swim in the river, you got to wear your goggles. Yeah, that was something that was said by a very drunk man who was sitting behind us at a Blazers game that we attended. Uh, he was, I believe, rooting for the Knicks, although it was difficult to tell because he kept shouting things that didn't make a ton of sense. Like, yeah, if you're going to go swimming in the river, you better make sure you put on your goggles. Mm -hmm. Definitely a Knicks fan. It is sound advice. Oh, sure. It just didn't seem particularly applicable to the situation we were in. No. And the security guards didn't like that. They were like, sir, <laughs> your advice is not applicable. You're out. Exactly. Thank God for those security people. Yep. 
Well, would you like to talk about a comic book? I would like to talk about this comic book. All right, let's do that. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I gotta say, it started off in a way that concerned me, because on the cover, there's kind of a subtitle under where it says the Defenders that announces the Silver Surfer, the Incredible Hulk, and the Savage Submariner. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's weird that they call out the Hulk as like he's a special guest, because he's usually part of the gang. Well, he hasn't been for several issues now. I know, but I still think of him as kind of one of the core defenders. But what really bugged me is Silver Surfer is in a blue font, the Incredible Hulk is in a red font, and the Savage Submariner is in a green font, which, in my mind, really should have been for the Hulk. Mm. I think maybe they didn't have a silver font, so they were just like, well, then you know what? Just nobody gets their preferred color. All bets are off. Mm -hmm. It's just more fair that way. Okay. So that was your primary thought on this comic? Uh, you know, I enjoyed reading it despite it being pretty confusing. Like, the mechanics of it all make sense, except that when it gets to that part where the tide churns and the battle starts to go the way of the defenders, mm -hmm. I just couldn't piece together what the cause of that was or why that happened, other than, you know, Gargoyle figures out how to free the folks that are captured so that they can help out. But then the lead demon guy says, well, I put that thought in your head. I meant for that to happen. See, I actually enjoyed that. It was definitely an example of a supervillain having an overly complicated plan that involves it looking like the heroes are winning for a while. But I actually thought it did kind of make sense. And I think part of the reason it made sense, despite being, yes, overly complicated, is that the villain that it was is Mephisto, who is one of the many stand-ins in the Marvel Universe for Satan. And he is that kind of, like, Machiavellian schemer who's always, like, pulling the strings and shit. And, I don't know, like I said, I agree, I think it is complicated, but the way that I interpreted that battle, and that part of the battle where the tide turns, is that Mephisto needed to get the defenders to expel a certain amount of energy. And that included bringing the Silver Surfer and Clea and the Submariner in. And once they had used that amount of energy, then he's like, okay, shit, I don't need to maintain this facade anymore. That would have taken a relatively tiny exposition box. <laughs> I thought that it was explained. I didn't really get it because it seemed like Maya was like, no, I planned that. And so I guess it was just Mephisto all along was the six-fingered hand? Yes. Okay. And I think he does explain that when he is flying the Defenders through space in their weird little suppository that they're hanging out in. Mm -hmm. He does have a lot of exposition, and I think part of what he does explain there is, yes, he was using the six-fingered hand as a cat's paw because he noticed that Steve should have been using cosmic offsets, which is a big plot point, it turns out. Mm -hmm. Mephisto is like, hmm, you still don't understand, do you? Hear me. When Eternity's other selves nearly destroyed the multiverse, the very fabric of reality was stretched beyond belief. My brothers and I knew that the time for action was rife. For when the doorways that keep Earth forever blocked from the myriad hells were weakened by that stretching, we only needed something to give it a final push. 
You provided us with the clue, Doctor, when you used your spell of transportation to take the Defenders to London in your battle against Nebulon. Blah blah blah. We decided to provide you with the reason to repeatedly utilize that spell and so created the Six-Fingered Hand. You could not know that the hand was brought into existence for the express purpose of leading you on that chase. Why, even they didn't know. Poor, uh, devils. So he does more or less come out and say all that stuff. Yeah, no, a, a clever ruse. I get it. That's just, it was a little, I guess, just jarring for like this whole time. And I mean, that's, that's part of the reveal, right? That's supposed mm-hmm. to be, you're like, ah, oh, Mephisto thing, dude. Right. Were you familiar with Mephisto coming into this? Pretty much just a name. I'm sure he's popped up like in my reading in the past, but yeah, I, I couldn't really remember him. Um, I did come away from this issue being, you know, with that idea of like, wow, bad guys get the best dialogue. Like, he's pretty great in this. He was so much fun, both as Mephisto and as Maya, the leader of the Six-Fingered Hand. My big disappointment with the handling of the Six-Fingered Hand, like, I actually liked the fact that they were pretty easy to defeat in the end, because we've been seeing that. Like, they seemed to be confident for no real reason when the defenders beat them every time they encountered them. And so finding out that they were just a puffed up cat's paw to get the defenders to move in a certain direction, I thought made sense. But I was disappointed that in neither this issue nor the last one, they were living on a six-fingered hand anymore. Mm-hmm. So. Do you think having them live on a six-fingered hand, because we saw it a bunch in their first few appearances, and then they just kind of dropped that, did they actually live on a six-fingered hand, or was that just a visual representation of the fact that they had formed a group together and, like, they thought it was a cool, tough name? I like to think that they lived there, but I do feel like we were only shown that image a few times as maybe metaphor. Yeah, it was always shown in a dreamlike state, so I think that does make sense. On the other hand, I also think it does make sense for Mephisto to just be like, I'm going to make these guys live on a fucking hand. (laughs) Fuck Mm them. He is a real dick. He's basically the cosmic version of Satan that is in the Marvel Universe. He was always trying to get the Silver Surfer's soul was a big running thing in the late 80s, early 90s. He fought the Avengers a bunch of times. He's, you know, the devil, but kind of in a weird cosmic sense. He's not the only devil in the Marvel Universe. As we see on the final page here, the real bad guys were not the six demons who lived on a hand together, but the League of Substitute Satans, I guess we could call them, (laughs) who are all of the different Satans who have decided to form a super group. I thought that was kind of neat. Sorry, which... Substitute Satans? Um, The four main bad guys at the end of the book. They're like a league of substitute Satans, or maybe Satan and the Satanettes? You see, Satan is the guy who's sitting on the throne who Hellcat Uh brings Nighthawk to. And then on the final page, when Mephisto shows up and says, Hell on Earth, you see that Satan there. Mephisto Mm -hmm. is off panel, but he just showed up. And then you got Satanish is sitting next to Satan. And then under him is a guy named Thog, who is another version of Satan. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I just thought those were like his like hype men or security or something. I can see that. But no, those are all different stand-ins for Satan that have appeared in different books throughout the Marvel Universe. And 
I don't know if it comes up in this book, so I don't want to get too much into it. But the guy that is Satan or has been calling himself Satan, he's got another name too. So he isn't necessarily the quote, real unquote, Satan either. But he is the guy I think who is son of Satan's dad. Oh, okay. Wow, I had no idea. That's a little complicated. It's a lot of Satans. Yeah, devil disambiguation is more or less a full-time job in the Marvel Universe. It's a lot of Satans. And you wouldn't think they'd necessarily be into teamwork, but they seem to work together okay. Mm-hmm. You know what they didn't work together well on at all, in my opinion? Is um, making any menacing demons. <laughs> Man, the demons in this comic are really goofy. They certainly are. I think Don Perlin just likes to draw some goofy-ass-looking demons. Yeah, that was fun, but it didn't leave you feeling quite as, like, scared as I feel like it should have. No, most of the demons just look kind of like, I'm going to say, D-tier Muppets, you know? Like, the Muppets you see in the background, but they don't even get a name like Sweetums or uh, Lou Zealand. They're, they're just like the, the monster Muppets that you sometimes see hanging out in group shots. Also, I gotta say, judging from the one panel from the kid who brings his mom to see where his friend who was a fan of Mandrake disappeared, mm -hmm. when all of those demons are swarming around the remains of Patsy's house, I had not realized until that point what a high percentage of a demon's day-to-day -day is spent just licking stuff. Because mm -hmm. it seemed like most of those demons were just licking the rubble that was lying around. There's definitely a lot of tongues lolling, too. And uh, those of them that had eyelids, very heavily lidded. I, I got the sense that like they ate the whole box of edibles, but they thought it was <laughs> candy or something. Yeah, totally. I mean, demons, if you're listening, if you think the edible hasn't kicked in, still wait a little bit longer to make sure before you eat the other half. My theory was that perhaps they had attended the State Fair of the Damned that seemed to be taking place in the Nexus of Reality, and maybe they ate some of those weird like spit roasted lizards mm -hmm. that were on the like 7-Eleven hot dog rack. Mm -hmm. And that made them a a little bit logy. And two, they just really wanted to get that taste out of their mouth. You know, it's funny in that scene. I know that was supposed to be disturbing. The, the lizards and the 7-Eleven hot dog thing. But mm -hmm. I, I, I really was just like, well, you know, meat is kind of a social construction. <laughs> I'm sure there's. <laughs> Some context in which a roasted lizard is fine. I think there is. I would say that my problem with it was more than it just being a roasted headless lizard on a spike was that it seemed that it had been prepared in pretty unhygienic circumstances. That faceless carny who is roasting them, he's got flies coming off of him. His shirt is torn. The top of his straw boater hat is like flopping off to one side like it is the partially opened lid of a hobo's can of beans. That is not the circumstances that I want my food prepared in. I'm glad you called that out because in that panel, I, for some reason, was just thinking he was a customer. 
and was just looking down at that lizard. He's kind of caressing it, and he's like, I don't have a face. How how am I going to eat this? Oh, I can see that. I thought he was working at the lizard vending booth. No, I think you're right, because there's like a butcher knife hanging on the wall behind him and, and stuff, and he's sort of behind the counter. Mm-hmm. I was so fixated on, how is he going to eat that thing? Man, that is one of my favorite scenes in the book. It is just really weird looking. You get the merry-go-round in the background where people are just riding other people who are crouched down, and there's a big brass band playing, and then a bunch of people dancing around, too. It's weird, but I feel like the bar for weird had been set pretty high by the youth pastor Capabara, who is walking his human on his lawn and having him take a shit in the last issue. So the most disturbing thing for me was the facelessness of everybody. Like, it's kind of a cheat, it's kind of easy shorthand, but I think it's an effective horror trope. Oh yeah, yeah, I appreciated it. And if you're looking to convey the idea of hell, a really bad state fair in florida yeah it gets the job done <laughs> fair enough ah uh, wait wait was that an intentional pun oh jesus no i wish well too bad because it's getting a rim shot yeah no keep it there you mentioned that mephisto's dialogue is super fun and it really is as Maya, he comes across as, like, really unctuous and overly polite and almost as if he is the lawyer for the six-fingered hand. And it really does keep you off guard. I don't know. There is, like, a sense of power that is conveyed by his just being smug and condescending and polite that I don't think you would get if he was being overtly threatening. It really does just put you on guard. Yeah, no, he's an effective uh, chief bad guy. And yeah, I don't know. This story has all of the hallmarks of things that haven't worked for me in past plots, but I think it was done in a way that made sense. It didn't seem like it was flying by the seat of its pants and being like, hey, remember all that shit we did before? No, never mind. Here's where we're going with it now. There was a twist for sure, but once the twist was revealed, you do see the stages that set it up before. And I appreciated that. And so as part of that twist where it's Mephisto, you know, getting ready to reveal himself so he can put all the defenders in the suppository capsule thing. Mm -hmm. Part of that is all the faceless Floridians suddenly returning back to human and having their faces. That was the part that I was a little bit confused about, because that did seem like that was kind of out of nowhere. The tide of the battle turns and then, oh, they go back to being human. I think maybe that was partly Mephisto being like, okay, I don't need to maintain this facade anymore. Job done. I get to undo the shit. But I was a little bit confused because then they all disappear entirely. I don't know if he just sent the whole town back to Florida from the nexus of reality because now they've created hell on earth and so they don't need to kidnap the town anymore. Or if Florida can just be regular. <laughs> yeah. Or if it had never been there to begin with, if it had always been illusion. I will grant you that part was very confusing to me, and I can kind of see that one going either way. 
Do you have a feeling about which way that was going? No, no, actually, I, I didn't think about it at all. I was more so just trying to figure out why the battle turned, and then I got distracted by um, Mephisto and his dialogue and explaining everything to the defenders. I kind of forgot about Citrusville. That's understandable. But back to Mephisto's plot, we do see that, like, yes, he needed things to look like the defenders were winning for a while, but... Unlike with Brother Blood, there is the reason behind it, because he needs them to expel their energy, and that's why he had Gargoyle free them from their little snow globes that they were in, so that they could, like, come and the Silver Surfer can use his cosmic power and everything. And then, uh, you know, they should have called and gotten us to provide some cosmic offsets and done some super boring, not-at-all-magical shit. We offer very reasonable rates. I think that's the real takeaway here is that, you know, when you cut corners, this is the kind of thing that happens. So, you know, send that cosmic offset money to tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. It's probably tax deductible. Yeah, no reason to feel bad about teleporting and whatnot. Yeah, just send us a check, and then you can teleport as much as you want, knowing that we will be there doing our best to keep things mundane, and keeping the League of Substitute Satans from invading our realm. Yep. What did you think of the Nighthawk interlude in here? Um, I think we're supposed to read his interaction with Luann. His nurse is, you know, he's feeling humbled that she needs to, I don't know, wipe his butt or something. Mm -hmm. But it did read a little weird the way that he said when you had to first you know do things for me (laughs) yeah it's like kyle no i i know what you mean that that did seem a little bit uncomfortable also i will note that last issue you had noticed that the nurse looked a lot like the queen of england and in this she is a much younger woman who seems to be i don't know necessarily hipper she still does have kind of a bowl cut but I think she is drawn in the more traditional shorthand for an attractive young woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely not at all. Queen of England. And she gets more of a name. She is uh, Luann Bloom. Mm-hmm. And then Patsy teleports in and whisks Kyle away to meet with Satan in Arizona. Yep. I don't really get why Kyle needs to be there. Yeah, well, I guess I guess we'll find out. I mean, that's kind of... I, I think it's Mephisto says something about that. Like, we're using your other defenders for, you know, never you mind, but for our purposes. He says that about Damon Hellstrom and Patsy. He doesn't mention Nighthawk. And, I mean, Nighthawk had quit the team last issue. It's this weird thing where I feel like within the past four issues, Kyle's quit the team at least twice. Or said, you know, I'm really going to take some time off. And each time I've been like, that actually seems like a good decision for both him and the book. I keep wanting to miss Kyle because they're looking like they're writing him, showing a little bit more maturity and growth, but then he keeps not going away. How can I miss him when he won't fucking leave? Yeah, it's not possible. Frustrating. It is. Sucks to be Devil Slayer. Man, getting scratched, (laughs) having his cloak taken. Okay, he didn't get scratched. That was Son of Satan. Oh, I keep getting their names mixed up. It's really easy to do. Maybe it'll be easier to tell them apart now that 
Devil Slayer doesn't even have a cape anymore, which had been his one superpower, having a magic cape. And so now he's just like a regular guy. He's not even as strong as two regular guys, the way Kyle is. Oh, man. That's going to mess with your confidence. Yeah, he's a sub-Kyle addition to the Defenders. And he can't pull out any weapon that he wants either, so now he's just a guy in a bodysuit. I don't know, maybe there'll be some big reveal that it's important that he's there, but it seems more and more like he's just there so that Patsy could steal his cape. Mm-hmm. Well, that explains why he showed up. I guess. It's also weird, though, that, I mean, we've talked about the fact that his name is Devil Slayer, and despite that name, he has never killed the devil, and now there's four the devils hanging out? I feel like the rest of the defenders have just got to be looking at him like, <laughs> seriously, guy? I mean. Go ahead. Anytime you're ready. Yep. I wasn't crazy about the explanation of Gargoyle's powers. That he basically got them by sucking the life force out of people that he had zapped. Yeah. So he zaps people with blasts of having stolen their life force? Oh. Or he zaps them with blasts of stealing their life force? Yeah, I think it was more the latter. I just am having trouble conceptualizing that. It's like uh, like one of those energy vampires. Energy vampires, the ones that I've dealt with, generally don't blast beams out of their hands. Oh, no, no. They'll just like talk to you, ask you how your weekend was. <laughs> you know, I can actually see Isaac doing that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's counterintuitive, right? Because you're shooting a blast from you to somebody else so it doesn't seem like it should be a uh, pulling your energy out situation and if it was doing that you'd think he'd notice it mm -hmm. but he didn't until he was told i'm just i'm a little bit confused as to how that works logistically also like once you've figured that out is it really the right time to test it like in this very tenuous situation where you know applying energy to these traps that your friends are in causes them great pain? Well, he's puking up their life forces that he hasn't sucked from them yet at them? Right. Like, how is that different than Strange being like, I'm going to free you from these cages and zapping the cages, and everybody's like, ow, that fucking hurts, dude. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it should be that different, but... There is kind of the out that he just somehow knew all this information because Mephisto put the idea for him to do that in his mind. So, yes, it makes sense that he wouldn't have been able to puzzle that out on his own, but it also makes sense that he intuitively had that information because it had been planted in his mind. Also, you had said, wouldn't he be worried that using his power in that way would hurt his friends? They're not his friends. He's actually never met these people before. So maybe that's less of a concern for him. Yeah, yeah, not scoring a lot of points with me, Gargi. His heart's in the right place, kinda? Mm. I mean, look, he didn't trade any of their souls for economic incentives. So that's a step in the right direction. <laughs> okay. There is a weird piece of dialogue that Mephisto has where he's talking about the two portals to hell that we know about, one of which is in Montclair, New Jersey, 
which is where Cliffy ended up accidentally summoning a lizard by trying to play Mandrake. Mm -hmm. The other of which is in Arizona, which I get the impression that that is referencing perhaps an old Son of Satan storyline, that that version of Satan has some special connection to that place. Or maybe it's just shit-talking Arizona. But part of Mephisto's exposition, he just phrases it awkwardly and in a way that unfortunately isn't all that uncommon in comic books, where he's like, from Arizona to China, from New Jersey to Africa. This is like, I need two other places. And putting states on par with countries and continents, it is such a common trope in comic books that Africa is regarded as a single place that I'm no longer surprised by it, but I'm always disappointed by it. Yeah, no, that really stood out to me, too. I think my notes were like, Arizona equals China, New Jersey <laughs> equals Africa. What? Yeah. Come on. And that we don't even see those other places either. It's just like, and the rest, you know? Mm-hmm. it's We've got them in important places like Arizona and New Jersey, and also in, you know, eh, wherever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some other continents. Yeah. It's it's odd because I feel like a ton happens in this comic book, but I think the rest of what I want to talk about is going to come up in the minutia. Uh, you ready to move into that segment of the show? Yeah, it sounds good to me. I guess other than uh, me still being mad that Maya uses the word irascible correctly, whereas <laughs> I, I keep thinking it's like analogous to incorrigible, but fair enough. Well, if it makes you feel better, he is the devil. Uh... He's got his own dictionary. The Devil's Dictionary, you know? Okay, well, okay. Yeah, that does make me feel better. Thanks. Let's let's go to the minutia. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting us off with? Let's talk about some fashion. All right. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you find most noteworthy? I was thinking maybe one of the reasons Maya is so evil is because he has to wear itchy grass hot pants. Mm. So you thought those were grass? Or maybe some kind of fur? I was going fur just because to me they looked kind of like He-Man underpants. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, all of the He-Man characters wore those furry underpants, which never made sense to me, because I'm like, you know, if it's hot enough that you need to be wearing your underpants, the fur on them is going to be really uncomfortable. And if it's cold enough that you need to be wearing fur, you're going to be want to be wearing more than underpants. Man, that's a good point. I never thought about that. They should have been, I guess, the uh, FCC or whatever wouldn't let them wear mesh. <laughs> oh, probably. It always just gave me the impression that, oh, these guys figured out spaceships before they figured out textiles. Seems like weird priorities. Or, I don't know enough about Eternian physiology, but it might be a thing where, like, you know how you lose, like, 90% of the heat of your body through the top of your head, and that's why you gotta wear a hat? Uh Maybe on Eternia you lose... 90% 90% of your heat from your, your dong. Uh-huh. Just your junk region? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, your junkular region. Mm-hmm. But 
Either way, yeah, I think Maya would be fairly uncomfortable in the uh, sweltering Florida heat. I can see why he would want to wear not very many clothes, but wool in the under regions or scratchy grass or fur just seems like a bad choice. Oh, yeah, I'm not condoning it, but I just I noticed it and was thinking, dang. Maybe because he is Mephisto and we see that he is a master of illusion. Maybe he just wants to try to make that look catch on with the other demons because he's being a dick. Yeah, he is that. He's like, oh, I'm the leader. I'm the most powerful. This is a great way to dress. And so, you know, you got your fucking unthink and your avarish being like, oh, I guess maybe we should wear furry underpants, too. You want to kiss up to the boss. Yeah, but these crotch curtains are so (laughs) ventilating and comfortable. Seriously, that's what you want to be wearing in the heat? Peekaboo mm. crotch curtains. Everybody knows that. It's Demon 101. Come on, guys. We talked a bit about some of the fashion going on in the State Fair of the Damned that uh, is taking place in Netherverse Citrusville. But in addition to the slovenly lizard vendor, the tattered marching band uniforms, red and gold, perhaps they are the McDonald's Land Marching Band. <laughs> That has seen better days, uh, I found pretty striking. Yeah, it's a heck of a look. Mm-hmm. And the dancers that are on the stage who are, I don't know what kind of dance they're doing. Um, have you seen the movie Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping? No, I have not. Okay, well, the fictional pop band in that does a dance called the Donkey Roll. And it does look kind of like maybe the people on stage are doing that dance. But one of them is wearing what looks like the tattered remains of a yellow and blue tuxedo. Uh, yeah, it looks a little green in my copy, yellow and green, uh, hmm. or- Oregon Ducks uh, colors. Oh, perhaps he was attending an Oregon Duck-themed wedding mm-hmm. in Florida. Perhaps. Yeah, I guess the dance would be described, at least by the exposition, as a uh, spasmodic, obscene, prancing caper. Well, I mean, that's what you do at a wedding, right? Depends how much you've had to drink, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming there was an open bar. Oh, I don't know. Oh, God, they are in hell. Yeah. No, you gotta pay. Oh, God, a cash bar? My God. (laughs) All they have is Michelob Ultra. (laughs) And warm Midori. Oh, I felt bad for the citizens of Citrusville before, but now... Mephisto has gone too far. (laughs) I know he's the devil at all, but a cash bar at a wedding? One of the other denizens of Citrusville, the first one that they encounter, is a faceless schlub with a Boris Johnson haircut, (laughs) wearing a yellow and white Hawaiian shirt covered in, like, random geometrical shapes. Mm -hmm. I thought that was worth pointing out. He is either wearing no pants or light orange pants. Yeah, they looked uh, light orange in my copy. Mm. Yeah, no, in the in the panel where he backhands Valkyrie, that is more clear. Yeah, I hadn't made the uh, Boris Johnson connection, but that's a strong mm. one. It's not quite fashion, but uh, this category I think we have used before to delve into interior design. And uh, Kyle's apartment has some weird modern art in it which is i think a nice touch did you notice that yeah 
the posters on his wall, like the, the color theme. I don't know why, but it reminded me of, you know, that English beat record, Just Can't Stop It? Yeah. Like it had that magenta and, and white kind of thing going on. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. But I, I don't think he had an English beat poster on his wall. No. If he was going to frame a single English beat record, it would probably be special beat service, right? Well, because Kyle loves airplanes or? <laughs> exactly. Okay. And he loves the song Jeanette. That is a catchy song. It is very catchy. I bet I get hamburger <laughs> again. It's no tears of a clown. It's weird because with the British accent, it does sound like he's saying tears of a clone. A clone? Yeah. Mm, didn't put that together before. Which reminds me of that Weird Al song, I think I'm a clone now. Uh, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. But actually, the art that I was talking about is in the panel right above that. It's got like some headless busts with busts. Yes, he does. Yeah, it's some headless nude ladies, I believe, that are like bookending a weird poster that he has behind him that's like a long painting of some kind that has impact noises and maybe musical notes. The caption cuts off at least a third of the painting, but I was really trying to figure out what was going on in it because it looks pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's expensive. Oh, yeah. And that may be the entire point of it. Mm -hmm. And Kyle also has some nice green and black striped pajamas. Mm -hmm. Yep, I had those uh, written down too. It seems weird that he is wearing pajamas during the day because he did say that he was going to devote more of his time to running his company. And I know that at night he is no longer physically paralyzed, but it would be harder to run a company just at night. So you would think he would do some of the shit during the day, especially because he said he was still going to be fighting crime at night. So that he's wearing pajamas during the day just seems like an odd choice. Well... I guess if you're the boss, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. He probably dictates to Luann. Well, she's a nurse. She's not a secretary, Corey. Well, I don't know if he's he's going to make that distinction. Mm, that's fair. Maybe that was the thing that she was doing for him that he was all self-conscious about. <laughs> Remember when I asked you to sell all those shares? Um, <laughs> I'm ashamed. I should have realized that you're a nurse and not my secretary. Yep. And in neither of those circumstances was it appropriate for me to ask for a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Any other fashion you wanted to talk about? Uh, just the last bit was Mephisto's appearance was majestic. He's wearing a full body suit that's super duper tight. It basically looks like he's airbrushed bright red. And uh, he's got a, a peekaboo crotch curtain, too. Oh, does he? Let me take a look at that. Huh. And my notes were like, why do you even need that? You're already coated in spandex or airbrush paint or whatever it is. Yeah. It's just a look. Well, it is said the devil would take a pleasing form. <laughs> it is weird that he's wearing a peekaboo crotch curtain over a full body suit. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, unnecessary. Well, that's the devil for you. Just add to the mystique, you know. Mm-hmm. What's under that thing? Uh, his nether trident, perhaps. <laughs> Speaking of which... Corey, it's time for another Battle of the Band Names! In last week's poll, we saw our new champions, 
the gods of science defeat their challenger, Sonic Disruption. Mm. It was a pretty tight contest, but gods of science and their bombastic indie rock did eventually triumph. In this issue, were you able to find any band names that you think might be able to attack and dethrone the gods of science? Yeah, I got a, a couple potentials. All right, what you got? The first one is, I think they're rather introspective. A Darkness Far Deeper. Oh, that's pretty good. That's deep, man. Yeah, and dark. Yeah, they probably formed after seeing the Velvet Underground play. Yeah, definitely. Got some Velvet Underground influences for sure. Okay, on the other end of the spectrum, we have, I think, a pretty good time party band called The Revelry. Wow, I'm surprised that's not an actual band name. Uh, I didn't look it up. Maybe they are. Ah, that's always wise. Okay, well, if that ends up being our choice, then I'll do a little research. All right. Another band that I had, which I'm pretty sure is not a name already, Bolts of Bedevilment. Oh, shit. Oh, is that our choice? That's our choice. You had that as well? Yeah, that was my runner-up. Okay, well, let's run through the rest of them, and then we'll come back to that. See if we have any other overlap. One of my other options was Nether Trident. Did you have that as well? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. That is interesting. What would happen if we... I guess then we'd actually get to choose if we both have two of the same. What kind of music do you think Nether Trident would make? Oh, that's got to be metal. I can see it being metal. I can also see it being like maybe they are a power duo that is one human and a Klingon. And they are making metal, and the reason they're called Nether Trident is because Klingons uh, famously have two dicks. So together they are Nether Trident. Oh, wow. That's, that is something. Mm-hmm. No, I just, the name reminded me of that, what was that metal band from the 90s? Prong? I'm not familiar with them. I think the name, the name sounds really familiar. Yeah. Were they one of the bands that participated in the, uh, the rap slash metal combos on uh, the Judgment Night soundtrack. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. Seems like they might have been, but I might be mixing them up with Therapy? <laughs> or Sonic Youth. <laughs> I'm not mixing them up with Sonic Youth. I, I'm just trying to think of <laughs> who all I remembered from, from Judgment Night. Oh, let's see. Uh, Onyx was on there. Uh-huh. Mudhoney and Sir Mix-a-Lot did a song together on that that was actually pretty good. Ah, Seattle represent. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite song on there was the De La Soul Teenage Fan Club one. Well, we've got some 90s listening to do. I guess we do. I liked that soundtrack a lot. The Booyah Tribe was on there. Biohazard. Oh, jeez. I think Faith No More. All right, sorry. We're getting a little bit off topic. <laughs> Both of bedevilment, hub. Sorry. Did you have any other options? No, I just, I sadly only had those two. Okay, well, Bolts of Bedevilment it is. What kind of music do you think Bolts of Bedevilment play? The name makes me think of the Fireballs of Freedom. Oh. So maybe it's like that kind of rock music. That's just pretty straightforward hard rock, right? Yeah, I would I only know one of their songs i know we went to a couple of parties at their house i see bolts of bedevilment just from the name i'm kind of getting them being metal but kind of camp metal you know what i mean Mm. 
Like, they're a metal band that is a parody of metal bands, almost, but is still a metal band. I'm trying to think of a real-world example of that. The Darkness? I think The Darkness would be an example of a band that is pretending to be a thing, but is also that thing. Mm. So yeah, I, th- I think like like the Bolts of Bedevilment are kind of a midway point between the darkness and Guar. <laughs> oh my, that's hard to imagine. Okay. Well, it's, you know, it's a midway point, much like Chicago is a midway point between <laughs> New York and LA. Like, there's a lot of territory between the two things that it is a midway point between. But, uh, that's where I'm seeing them fit in. So, like, we won't eat your car, but we will have dinner with you? Yeah, and we've got a decent falsetto. Okay. Like Wait, it. did the darkness have dinner with you? Well, no, I was just trying to think of if Guar will eat your car, like, what's the other end of that, and where do you meet in the middle? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Out of the two I noticed, I think I'm going to go with Hawk. Okay, and that is the faceless Boris Johnson in the uh, bad Hawaiian shirt backhanding Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't like the uh, action, but the, the noise was, I don't know, I just thought it had kind of a funny hollow sound, like a not very effective smack. Mm-hmm. And I liked that characterization of the people that were that afflicted that just anybody coming near them, they just lashed out at because they were in a ton of pain. I get it, man. Sucks to not have a face. Mm-hmm. I went with the other sound effect that I noticed, which was the son of Satan using his nether trident, uh, which made the noise swoosh. Yeah, I know it's supposed to be like an energetic or electrical, perhaps, sound, but it definitely sounded more liquid. Yeah, it sounded like it was liquid fire splashing all over Mephisto, and... uh the illustration looked that way, too, I felt like. And mm. so, yeah, pretty cool. Whoosh. And that's it for sound effects, as near as I could tell. That's all I got. Every issue of a Defender's comic book has a best Defender and also a worst Offender. This issue gave me a little bit of difficulty, but I was able to find one of each. Were you? Indeed. All right, well, who you got? Yeah, I I had Val for rescuing Gargi from, you know, potentially a, a bad situation and uh, kicking a demon's butt. And huh? just in general, being being a cool character and keeping her head. Yeah, I think that's a pretty solid choice. I I just had a lot of difficulty picking somebody out in this. I feel like most of them were doing at least a little bit bad in that they are, you know, literally contributing to the hell on earth situation. So I was looking for something that kind of counterbalanced that. I ended up going with the Silver Surfer for a very specific thing that he did, which was trusting Clea's judgment, but not Steve's. <laughs> it didn't end up working out particularly well. He still ends up in this weird version of hell. Uh, and helping contribute to hell on earth. But we saw before when Steve asked him for help saving the universe, he was just like, no, fuck off, go away. I'm busy moping. But when Clea asks him for help, he's like, "Eh, she seems like she's got a good head on her shoulders. I guess I'll go with her. So I went with the Silver Surfer. Fair enough. Makes sense. Conversely, 
I had difficulty picking one for the opposite reason here, because I feel like a lot of defenders did at least a pretty bad job in this. Who did you have as your worst offender? In this case, I went with Steve for a couple reasons. One, you know, he basically played right into um, Maya slash Mephisto's hands. Mm-hmm. Hook, line, and sinker, you know. I also, though, was was really troubled by the first thing that he said when he goes up to Clea and she's in her prison. He addresses her, Clea, my disciple, my love. It's like, whoa, dude, your order of, yeah, you know, titles is kind of screwed up. It's kind of telling. Yes. Person who receives my instruction. Oh, and also I love you. Mm-hmm. Boo. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I had Steve in pretty high contention for, you know, kind of breaking reality and being a creep in that way. I ended up going with Son of Satan, even though I enjoyed the way that he was being a dick. He was being such a dick. Like, he starts to get angry and use his powers and he sees that it hurts people. And then Steve's like, hey, hey, chill out, buddy. And he apologizes and stops. And then Steve does the same thing because Maya's being such a dick. And he's like, I can bear it no longer. And he tries to free them, and it backfires, of course. And uh, Son of Satan's just like, now who needs to exercise restraint, strange? (laughs) I know. Steve's like, hey, don't rub it in. (laughs) Apparently, you do not have a monopoly on rash action, Damon. But I see no reason to gloat over the fact. Yeah, I love that exchange. (laughs) It really cracked me up. And then later on, Son of Satan also is the guy who kind of triggers the, you know what, I don't care if it kills or hurts these people, I'm going to free them. And that seems like an odd decision for you to make, Damon. Everyone else backs him up on it. But when he's just like, yeah, I don't care if it does kill them, I'm still going to do this shit. It seemed a little fucked up. Indeed. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you enjoy most, much like you would enjoy a pie if it were not made out of steel? Well, we just got finished uh, talking about (laughs) what a jerk Son of Satan was in this issue. And when he's losing his shit, one of the things he says to the demons is he calls, um, or maybe it's just Maya, a smug, vile-hearted animal. Pretty good. And uh, we don't have a bozone, but I thought, oof, dang. That's pretty harsh. I mean, sure, he is the embodiment of all evil, but that doesn't mean you have to hurt a guy's feelings. No. I had a few to choose from. Like we both discussed, Maya's dialogue was all a lot of fun. I think my favorite instance of that is once he is Mephisto, Silver Surfer says, Believe me, Hellstrom, words cannot hope to capture the depth of evil that runs so deep in this monster. And he says, Please, please, these compliments will make my head spin. And I really can't take full credit for this. After all, the good Doctor Strange was the one who truly made it possible. Mm-hmm. He's just so smarmy. I love him so much. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really delightful exchange. But I don't think that's my favorite words in the issue. I think for that, I gotta go to the Hulk. He only has, I believe, one spoken line in the issue. It is after he and... Namor and Clea and the Silver Surfer have been freed from their snow globes, and they've just beaten up all the demons, the citizens of Citrusville have disappeared, and the 
six-fingered hand has shrunk down to actual finger puppet size. I guess it's not even a spoken line, but he thinks to himself, Little men look funny. Like silly bugs. <laughs> it was just so cute. Like, calling these demons silly, I thought was really fun. Yeah, it was nice to have uh, Hulk's levity. Mm-hmm. Okay, Corey. Behold or be gone. Having access to the nexus of all realities, being able to travel to any dimension in the multiverse, but you do have to live in the town of Citrusville, Florida to do this. Behold or be gone. Do you want to travel to other dimensions, but from Citrusville? Do we know if Citrusville made its way back to Florida, or is it still in that uh, plane of hell? Okay, for the purposes of this question, let's assume that it is on Earth. And yeah, the nexus of reality is just a dimensional portal that lets you have access to any dimension and all different multiverses, basically. You can go to any fictional reality. It was mostly used by Steve Gerber to show different genres. So there would be like a high fantasy universe or a science fiction universe, and you would have access to all of those through a single portal. How often do I get to leave Citrusville if I want to go somewhere that's not in the multiverse? Well, everywhere is in the multiverse. I I don't know what you mean by somewhere not in the multiverse. Like not through the portal. Like if I just want to go to like New York or something. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess as often as you would normally leave your hometown to travel somewhere else. Man, I feel like the obvious answer is yeah, totally. But... You know, thinking on it a little bit, I do love to travel, and I like Mm -hmm. to see new stuff, but honestly, I'd be a little bit afraid of zapping myself off to some other world. Like, how do I navigate that without getting sick or killed? Or Yeah, and I think you hit on a really interesting point, too, with the spatial travel as well as dimensional travel. Yes, you could go to a different dimension. So, like, you could go to a science fiction or a high fantasy dimension, but you would not be necessarily, by stepping through the portal, be traveling through space as well as dimensions. So, I mean, like, you'd be going to science fiction Citrusville, Florida, or high fantasy Citrusville, Florida, which I think could be interesting, but also, it's gonna be muggy, it's a swamp town, so there's gonna be a lot of mosquitoes, and... I don't know. I just, I, I don't like it when it's so muggy. I definitely have a higher tolerance for that than you. But so wait, you're saying that the way that this multiverse travel works, it's different flavors of citrus fill. It's not necessarily like I'm going to Asgard or something. Okay. So I think the way it works is you step through the portal and you're in the same dimension that Asgard exists in. But you're in Florida there, so you'll still need to physically travel to wherever Asgard is, which mm. probably is going to be like Scandinavia, right? Like in the clouds? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because that's a whole Yggdrasil situation. Yeah. So even if you get to Scandinavia, you're still going to need a spaceship or a rainbow bridge or something. Shit, man. I, I'm all for adventure and seeing new things, but I, I just feel like there's too many variables. Yeah. And also, how does time work if you're 
doing interdimensional travel? It's not like space travel with light years and stuff, right? It's you're in real time, or is it like dream time where it seems way longer than it is? Oh, uh, Corey, uh, time is a flat circle. That's helpful. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, like a flat circle, and it's got uh, one big hand that shows the minutes and a smaller hand that shows the hours. Man, I don't want to be a stick in the mud, but I, I think just there's... There's just too many questions I have to to behold this. I'm gonna I'm gonna be gone it. Yeah, I think I'm gonna be gone it as well. Damn, I'm disappointed at us a little bit. I am too, but I just don't like it when it's muggy. And this is why people should hire us for uh, their carbon, not carbon, <laughs> for their dimensional <laughs> offsets. Yeah, their cosmic offsets. Yeah, you know, we just turned down a chance <laughs> to go anywhere in the multiverse because it might be muggy. <laughs> It really does drive home the fact that we are just regular human men from Earth. We've always said that. Yes. And uh, I think that should maybe be on the Cosmic Offsets business card. (laughs) Human men from Earth. Hub and Corey, human men from Earth. Trust us. Yeah. So, you know, send your Earth dollars, I mean dollars, to uh, (laughs) tighten up the defense. Citrusville FLA. No, no, we, 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 we're not moving to Citrusville, Corey. Oh, that's right. Remember, it, it might be muggy. <laughs> right. Corey, what was your favorite panel? I was really amused by Evers flying through the air saying, what? <laughs> After Valkyrie <laughs> kicked him in the caboose. I really liked the demon melee on page 12. There was a ton going on there. But I think my favorite that takes the whole cake is the cosmic capsule on page 20 Mm. where it's in that psychedelic dimensional space you got mephisto with his arms crossed straddling or standing on the capsule and all the defenders in there looking out doing the mime thing (laughs) it is really fun and i think part of what i like so much about that whole page and the one preceding it is it is just a huge exposition dump There is like about three pages of Mephisto just talking and explaining part of what his evil plan was. It could have taken place anywhere. Like, that could be in the hellish dimension where he finds them. It could be on any dimension between there and Earth. He could just teleport them. But, need a lot of exposition. Let's give people something pretty to look at, or weird to look at. And it's both of those. It's just a really fun, cosmic-y looking image. Devil standing on top of a space suppository. Perhaps one of the lesser known of the uh, Wally Woods 22 panels that always work. (laughs) Are you familiar with the 22 panels that always work? I am now. I know one of them. (laughs) There was a artist, a really talented artist named Wally Wood, who, as a guide for both himself and other cartoonists, developed this thing that he called 22 panels that always work when a writer gives you pages of dumb dialogue and nothing interesting happening visually. And so, like, you can do the outside of the building that they are in and pull away from it. It, It's He just mapped it out. And it's once you see those, you see how often they crop up and how many people use that as a guide. (laughs) It's actually pretty cool. Um, And to the best of my knowledge, one of them is not the devil standing on top of a space suppository, but maybe should have been. Yeah. I had a lot of trouble narrowing it down to a single panel. 
I really enjoyed the panel of all of the goofy ass demons that are hanging out in New Jersey. I think if we're just going with a demon one, it's probably going to be that. The character design on those demons is the weirdest. The giant tongued monster with crab pinchers. And again, peekaboo crotch curtains and three eyeballs on stalks coming out of his forehead. There's just so many weird looking demons in that. And so many of them are licking the remains of Patsy's building. It's just a very jarring panel. You can see why uh, Edward Alvis and his mother are so disturbed by that scene. Yeah, you really can. And one of the things about these demons is really none of them are scary because they're all so goofy, except the one in the middle is potentially horrifying where he's got like all these faces bulging out from under his skin. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's hunched over and has a generally humanoid shape. But in addition to the head coming out of his shoulders, he has one staring directly at us out of his under armpit region. He has one coming off of his back and it looks like there is one coming out of the side of his butt. And it's really disturbing, actually. Yeah, it is. And, like, I know there's the comics code and all of that, but it does just strike me as really off that anytime there's a full frontal male demon, he's got to have underpants and the lady demons are wearing, like, cocktail dresses. <laughs> the lady demons wearing cocktail dresses particularly are... <laughs> That one demon, she actually looks kind of like, did you ever read the Roberta Gregory underground comic, uh, Bitchy Bitch? I don't think so. And she was a character in the comic book, Naughty Bits, actually. But uh, that that one demon does look a little bit like her. Hmm. But it is really weird, because we see Fishima in this issue again, too. And she, too, is wearing a cocktail dress. And it's just like, huh. Yeah. Okay. It's just weird that I guess they... Yeah, needed to make sure that they wear clothes. And also leads us to assume that these demons would all have nipples, despite the fact that none of them seem to be mammals. Mm-hmm. Puzzling. Indeed. Disturbing. Well, that's hell for you. <laughs> the panel that I think might be my favorite, though, is the last page, The Satan Squad, where you see Satan and Satanish and Fog and Patsy and Nighthawk looking really stunned, all hanging out in a hellscape version of New York. It's just, it's a pretty cool picture. And you get some goofy-ass demons in there, too. And there is a guy who is, looks like, horrified to be uh, up to his neck in a hot tub in a pothole. I guess maybe he, he, the deal he made with the demons was for a hot tub orgy, and he's like, but not like this! <laughs> yeah, he's not having fun. No, but uh, yeah, you get some goofy demons, you get some truly horrific images, and you get the reveal that it is the League of Substitute Satans, and I, I like that panel pretty good. Yeah, definitely leads up to um, issue 100, the big demon fight? Maybe? I don't know. Maybe there'll be another reveal that there's an even bigger bad guy behind this Satan squad mm. that only has like two members. It seemed because there's four of the Satan squad. There were six of the six-fingered hand. So uh, maybe, yeah, maybe there's a, a power couple behind mm. this that's mm. even more powerful than four Satans. Dude, I cannot believe we've read 100 of these, almost. It, 
really is something. Which means we've also read 100 Teen Titans. Oh. 100 new Teen Titans, because we already read 60 other Teen Titans before that. We've read, read so many. We've read a lot of comic books, Corey. Ah. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Man, this one is a, li- a little tricky, but uh, it's, it's one that he learned from Clea, and that's beware psychic fishing attempts. Corey, I had the same one. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I had a never pick up a call from an unknown astral number. Yeah, if someone asks you to do something you don't feel right about, do not do it. <laughs> no. I just need your routing number and your account number. <laughs> She's like, I'll get back to you, Steve. I mean, she should have known that something was up when he was like, Clea, the warranty on your vehicle is about to expire. Come meet me in Florida right away. Yeah, don't do it. No. (laughs) So yeah, I I had uh, the Hulk's takeaway being never pick up a call from an unknown number. They can leave an astral message and you can check out whether it's on the level. But, uh... Huh, interesting. I don't think we've ever had the same Hulk's rule before. Yeah, no, I, I usually go really more straightforward where it's just something the Hulk did. But no, this this was a this is a powerful message, obviously, resonated with everybody. Yeah. All two of us. <laughs> All two of us. Everybody well, I think I think we have a large enough sample size that our thoughts are probably universal. One hundred percent of podcast hosts on this show agree. All of us humans from Earth know this. Mm-hmm. Never accept an astral call from an unknown plane. And also, I don't have a, a vehicle's warranty in my name. So, good luck, guys. Mm-hmm. Is that a call that you get a lot? No. I get probably six or seven times a week. Really? Warning! The warranty on your vehicle is about to expire. Man. No, I get some that sound like they are. There was like um, text to speech engines, like a robot voice mm-hmm. saying something to the effect of social security fraud detected. Call us right away before legal action is taken. I did get one at one point that told me my social security number was about to expire. <laughs> I'm like, that's oh. not a thing. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't have a social security number. I'm not going to get caught up in the man's system. Hmm. You've been over my thoughts on The Man. Yeah, yeah, last episode, I believe. Oh, I hate that The Man so much. How do you piss him off again? I can't remember. By leaving us a positive review. Oh, that's he right. fucking hates it. He's all like, I wanted to oppress humanity and take away people's rights so that I could make more money. But now there's a positive review for tightening up the defense. Oh, I'm melting. Yeah, that's what the man's like. Man, that's a, that's a heck of a review in itself. Too bad we can't uh, in good conscience leave them for ourselves. I know, I know. But fortunately, we have a lot of listeners who can leave them for us. Yeah. And maybe they'll do that right after they hear what Wong doings Wong is doing in the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, September. Corey, what was Wong up to? 
Wong was trying to right a wrong that Steve, who thought he was being helpful, set in play. So on the 4th of September, 1981, Steve was having a conversation with some of his buddies who happened to work for the U.S. uh, Department of Agriculture, USDA. Mm -hmm. And his buddies, they were just having a lot of trouble figuring out with this, you know, food pyramid that they had going on, how to get school lunches balanced so that kids were getting enough veggies. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, Steve's probably favorite food are uh, just like a dirty water hot dog with just ketchup and relish on it. Hmm. And he's like, well, let's see, ketchup and relish, those are made from vegetables. He's like, boys, (laughs) what you need to do is just make sure that those children get plenty of ketchup and relish, and then they'll have their vegetable component. And uh, the USDA guys are like, that is fucking genius, man. And so they did. And those condiments actually were classified as vegetables for the purposes of defining a balanced meal. Steve was really quite pleased with himself for this and was regaling Wong with uh, the tales of how he had helped the government keep school children healthy. And Wong just really knew that that was terrible for nutrition. And, you know, that stuff is really just full of sugar and preservatives and has really no nutritional value to it. But he didn't want to burst Steve's bubble. So he placed a call to his buddy uh, Ward Sinclair, journalist at the Washington Post, who, a few days later, on the 9th, published an article titled, Question, When is Ketchup a Vegetable? Answer, When Tofu is Meat. It was basically an article talking about how screwed up it was that the USDA said relish and ketchup were vegetables. And, you know, created a public outcry. And a few weeks later, the uh, USDA reversed course and said, Oh, okay, you guys are right. Those aren't actual vegetables. So... Steve later found out that that had happened, not about the Wong part, but he was hurt and confused that his good idea was rejected, ultimately. But good job, Wong. Good job, Wong, indeed. Corey, what are your preferred hot dog toppings? Gosh, I like pretty much everything on there. Hmm. For me, if I'm making them at home, sriracha mayonnaise and caramelized onions. Oh, yeah, that is. And now you're getting fancy. I was just thinking like the kind of standard. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. Stuff, but yeah. No, I think I think you've made me one of those before. It is delicious. It's so good. It's nice. It's pretty easy, too. Well, that's one thing that Wong was doing, and I wouldn't feel too bad for Steve, because later on, he spent a fair amount of time trying to undo what he viewed as a harm that Wong had helped perpetrate. Hmm. Now, we've been over the fact before that Wong and Steve do enjoy relaxing with some strong Jamaican incense from time to time. And one of Wong's favorite activities, when the strong Jamaican incense is burning, has for a while been enjoying the art of a Belgian artist named Peo and his adorable creations, the Smurfs. (laughs) They, I believe, first appeared in the late 60s in, in painting form and in picture books, and Wong just thought they were a lot of fun and could also, you know, help teach children valuable lessons about the importance of socialism. So he did everything he could to help get the Smurfs on air in the United States. And his labors ended up paying dividends on September 12th, when the cartoon The Smurfs first aired in the United States. 
and it was a big hit. I personally loved the Smurfs when I was a kid. I wasn't watching them that early. And when I did watch them, it was on a very small black and white TV that we had. But their adventures were pretty charming. Steve, unfortunately, saw these Smurfs and his recent adventures in the hellscape that is Citrusville, Florida, led him to be quite alarmed to see the Smurfs on TV. Little blue, goofy-looking creatures. He was worried that having children see this magical realm, or in fact any magic at all, would potentially once again weaken the threads of reality that bind our universe together and make our dimension susceptible to the invasion of the Satan Squad. Now, the Smurfs was far too popular for him to have it taken off the air, but he finally did learn the lesson of the importance of cosmic offsets. <laughs> so since children, he felt, were being inundated with propaganda about the importance of magic, he felt, to counterbalance that, he wanted to promote people doing just physical activities that were within the realm of the physical plane and keep things not astral, not metaphysical, but physical. His message to the world was, let's get physical. And to help him put out that message, <laughs> he enlisted the aid of Olivia Newton-John, <laughs> the Australian Chanteuse, who, on September 25th, released the hit single, Physical. And it did pretty well. Wow, Steve. And, you know, the League of Substitute Satans hasn't invaded our realm since, so I think the real takeaway here is cosmic offsets work. I am inclined to agree. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in September of 1981. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a really good time talking about this comic. I think I maybe had a better time reading it than you did, but probably fair to say we're both looking forward to issue 100. Yeah, totally. Next week, we will be back with another new Teen Titans tale to see how Danny Chase is uh, fitting in with his more established teammates. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. And you can send us letters, cards, packages, or payments for our cosmic offsets. Just because the League of Substitute Satans hasn't overtly invaded our realm for the past 40 years doesn't mean they won't tomorrow if we don't get a check and start making sure that we engage in only mundane activities. Corey, if we don't get paid soon, I've been thinking maybe, maybe I should take up magic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, I think you'd be really good at it too, Corey. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to. I, mean, I don't know either. if I can afford not to unless I start getting some money. Yeah, well. I'm just a human man from Earth. Trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's one thing I know about human men from Earth, and I am one myself, so I should, it's that they gotta eat. We can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in a bunch of different aspects of social media. I uh, put out a question to people to try to figure out what kind of sandwich Danny was eating last week. Haven't gotten a definitive answer yet, but 
doing the important research to try to find out, which is, you know, asking you. So if uh, you want to find us on uh, the Facebook, Tumblr, the Twitter, Twitter is also where we do the polls for the Battle of the Band names, uh, you can probably find us there. Just hack into the core of the multiverse and find the dimension that has the most Twitters happening in it. And then you can take your light cycle down to the master control unit and he'll tell you where to send us your message. That's how social media probably works, I think. Mm -hmm. But if you get waylaid by space paranoids and aren't able to make your way to our address, mm -hmm. then there's one more place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's heart this week? Gosh, it's a long weekend, so probably barbecuing carefully and respectfully. Good call. Uh, tell you what, I'm going to mix myself up a batch of uh, sriracha mayonnaise and start caramelizing some onions so that uh, maybe we can have some turkey dogs or something. Yeah, I'll get those turkey dogs going. Guys, your heart is going to smell so good. Mm. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There are also a lot of video reviews of classic comic books up there. I've got a couple of new videos that will be up by the time this episode is posted. One of them is about a Gardner Fox comic, since we were talking about him last week. And another one is about a comic book that is tangentially related to the storyline that we are talking about uh, in this issue. So, uh, yeah, I think that'll be fun for you to check out. And that is just some of the material that is available exclusively to our patrons. There is a lot of stuff up for you to check out up there. Thank you so much for everyone who has donated. It is a really nice way to let us know that you care about the show and uh, want us to be able to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, I think we actually went over that already. Just, uh, you know, you can leave us a review. Uh, really stick it to the man. Because uh, he just hates it when we get a good review. Yep. Any other ways people can uh, help support the show, Corey, that you can think of? I'm telling people about it, really. If you enjoy it and you think somebody else might enjoy it, give a, give us a shout out. Yeah, you can do that either in person or uh, if, uh, you know, you want to say nice things about us somewhere on the internet, just hop on your light cycle or whatever and do that. Mm -hmm. Look out for those space paranoids. Because you know what? Fuck those guys. They tried to kill Bruce Boxleitner. That's bullshit, man. That sounds bad. Yeah, I think that's what happened in Tron, right? It's been a while since I've seen it. Bruce Boxleitner? I think he played Tron. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Jeff Bridges played Flynn. Uh-huh. And then Tron was the computer program he created. Uh-huh. Who was played by Bruce Boxleitner, I believe. Wow. Well, <laughs> until next week, Bruce Boxleitner. Bye. Bye. And they knew it.